As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by JJ Bull the Bullard. I can't wait for the podcast, Joe. That's right, me too. Don't have to wait any longer because we're joined by Jonathan Dog McKenzie. I'm also very excited about this podcast, Joe. Yay, we're all excited. And why could that be? Well, because we're excited every day that we wake up. And because the football happened over the weekend. And because... Someone stole my cafetiere. Someone stole JJ's cafetiere. Is this cafetier. a thing within an office environment where I have a cafetiere that's clearly mine, mm. right? Because it looks nice. Because it's got your name on but it. It's gone, it doesn't have my name on it, but it's gone missing. Someone's used it today. I think a cafetiere, I think it's fair for one Concept person to, you think it's common, to wonder to think, who, would anyone really bring in their own cafetiere? Yeah, several people have. Cafetier. Several people have. Well. And you see, and then they would use their own one. So I, I'm just wondering if I'm Who do you suspect here? of the writers at The Athletic? Who do you suspect stole <laughs> your cafetiere? I don't know, but I've looked for it and I can't mm. see who's got it. Yeah. So then I had to, So and I spent five minutes, obviously this is very hugely problematic for me because I can't make decisions. So then I had to stare at the empty, well, the cupboard full of other people's cafetieres and think, yeah. but if I take someone else's, then I'm part of the problem. That's true. It took me a long time to figure out, I just do it really quickly. It's like the Manchester United marking system, right? Yeah. As soon as yeah. one person messes up, then that's someone it. else has to mess up further that's down a good, the line. That's and it's a, funny to talk about decisions, isn't it? Because you clearly decided to kibosh my intro, and you decided yeah. to rescue it. Oh, yeah. Someone's done it, and they've not, I'm sure they've not done it on purpose, not realising it's a it thing. Be? But it's like when you live in a flat with all other people, and then yeah. you're like, why is they taking my cheese? <laughs> <laughs> why have they taken my cheese? Yeah, that would make you laugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, why indeed did they take the cheese? And that's what Manchester United <laughs> fans are asking Liverpool fans this morning. That wasn't English. No, it wasn't. And that's what we discuss in today's episode. Stick with us to find out more about the cafetiere. And <laughs> Arsenal leaving it as late as possible against Bournemouth. We discussed that. Can pigs eat humans? Uh, that comes up a bit later. <laughs> Of course, we're joined by Sebastian Stafford Bloor, Herr Bloor himself, in Newcastle and their owners. We talk about that too. And of course, the interesting title races currently occurring in Serie A. Well, that's less interesting because they, Napoli have already won. But yeah, and the Bundesliga, where it is interesting because uh, something is happening. Um, there are also an excessive number of idioms in this here episode today. And we talk about West Ham a little bit later on as well, don't we? And the ownership situation at Newcastle. Yeah, I already said that. You already that. said that. Oh, okay. You're not listening, are you? 
Well, in the first intro, we didn't remember that. So I'm just making sure that in the 18th intro that we are currently doing. And good that you're making a cock of the 18th intro by not paying attention. Yes, it's my fault that this intro has gone to 18 iterations. I apologize. That's right. And if you like things that run smoothly and aren't interrupted by John McKenzie, then you should visit The Athletic. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you can get a free trial, I believe, for a whole of 30 days. And uh, you can bear witness to the incredible, miraculous writings of many of the authors at the company. And, of course, also, you can read from time to time Sebastian Stafford Bloor. Sometimes JJ and John write things on there as well. It's really good. And if you don't like it, you can just cancel it before the 30 days is up. And your sign-up still counts in my favour. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. That's theathletic.com forward slash Tifa. But for now, I will leave you on the warm hands and the cool embrace of chaos. Well, we did have other plans for where to begin today's podcast, but of course, Sunday obliterated all of those plans. And I'm speaking, JJ Bull, of Liverpool 7. 7. Nail Manchester United. Now, that, that is some result, isn't it? It's, is it not the biggest defeat or equal biggest defeat Man United have ever had? It is very possible that's yeah, the case. In the league, certainly. And it's the biggest Liverpool have ever beaten Man United by. Yes, I would certainly not be surprised by that. Now, we had John covering the game for us yesterday, so we're going to come to him to talk about some of the tactical minutiae shortly. But what the hell happened? Well, the thing is for me that I thought it was quite even in the first half. And I thought the way that United set up, first 15 minutes, you keep it slow, like try and calm the crowd down. Just try and take any animosity and energy out of it. We know that Liverpool uh, rely on intensity. So if you can do anything to try and numb that, then good. Mm-hmm. And then they were all right. Like nothing wrong with the team selection. Seemed like a sensible thing to do, apart from Bruno Fernandes on the left, uh, which is something they changed at the very start. And there'll be reasons for that. And then United could have taken the lead with that Rashford chance, which I think he should probably have done better with. And then they get towards half time. Liverpool score one of their chances. What was the first goal again? Who scored it? It was Gakpo. 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 It was the kind oh, of cut yeah. inside. The lovely Robertson pass. After the Robertson pass. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. And then Gakpo gives him the lead. And then whatever happens during halftime, no idea. Because what happens afterwards is that Luke Shaw appears to have, like someone switched him off at halftime and he's yeah. still out on the pitch. Like someone's controlling him, but he's not He's not there. Like he's on standby. Um, Bruno Fernandes is going around waving his arms and gesturing at everyone to do things that they're not doing. But basically, it's a capitulation and it's... Ten Hag called it unprofessional in his post-match interviews, and, and I'd say he's probably right. That you shouldn't fall apart like that. It's players not being in the right place at the right time. The first goal to give away after half, after half time is Shaw just passing it inside, not even blindly. Just it, I don't like using the word lazy to to talk about footballers because they're not lazy, right? Mm. But it, it's like well, I don't know what he's thinking because he must see that that's a bad pass inside yeah. the pitch from where he is, especially in the the. It's certainly a risky pass. It's the kind of pass where if it comes off and you and you nip through, you 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 know decapitate a whole half of Liverpool's defence, but. It was not the right pass to make at that moment. But it's not even that. Like, you know Liverpool are going to try and show you to certain bits so they can press you through the middle. And he passes exactly where they're going to be. And then there's other examples of his particularly Shaw um, really 
not even out of position, just not reacting to things. I think Rashford wasn't great defensively. Mm. I think Anthony got hooked off at something, didn't he? They took him away. Yeah. It wasn't. I think it wasn't Varane had quite a poor game, a little bit of a wobbly game as well. But, but I think the thing with defenders, you can say that individually, the, the centre backs, mm. I don't think they did too much wrong individually. They're trying to constantly look around to see where things are. I sure. think I think Casemiro was still in the right place at the right time, but just things weren't bouncing off him. And then you get this momentum where every time Liverpool went forward, you felt like they were going to score. It just happens sometimes where you just know that nothing you do can yeah. stop it. There's but no way there's to stop a, it. There's a difference though between not being able to stop it and then just l- and letting it happen, right? I mean, and yeah. what happened in the second half to Manchester United? We talk about why maybe they were slightly more even in the first half. We, you know, we, we had conversations yesterday around like, is is this a kind of a significant cause for concern? Are there kind of um, structural reasons why this took place? Is this likely to happen again? It might have been different uh, in in how it played out from the Brentford game in the first half of the season, John. But the key thing about that Brentford game was that they conceded four goals in the first half and then they didn't concede again. Whereas in this game, they conceded one goal in the first half and it just got worse and worse and worse until the game was over. Uh, Luke Shaw, again, I don't, I don't want to pick on him specifically because there were a number of players who had very bad performances, of course, for a team to concede so many goals. But Luke Shaw is quite a good example of a player who... Many people have been saying this season has had one of his best seasons ever. People are talking about him as one of the best fullbacks in the world and he just completely switched off. This team appears to have that in them, doesn't they? Doesn't they? Do they? Don't they? Yeah, I think a nice comparison is the difference between the first Manchester derby and the second Manchester derby. So in the first Manchester derby, I think City ended up winning 6-3 and they, they were well ahead and I think Manchester United got a couple of goals back towards the end. And then obviously Manchester United won the other fixture 2-1. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think that is indicative of the fine lines that exist in the way that Manchester United play football, particularly out of possession. So this is what I focused on in my video, was that actually Manchester United were were actually very aggressive out of possession. They play this system which allows them to go player for player in lots of um, situations. It does introduce a weakness which I thought Liverpool exploited quite well in the first half that that was what led to the the first goal so Manchester United liked that they have a front three against a back four and what they do is when the ball goes one side they shift their three across and they leave the far-sided fullback free and the idea is that they have these certain like buffers to if the ball is played to that player to to account for it which is kind of a funny thing to happen against Liverpool given that over the last sort of three or four years the one thing you don't do is leave the fullbacks free, yeah. isn't that isn't that fair to say? I, th- I think so, yeah. Um, and look, I've I've been talking about this for a good few months now about this happening because I focus on our possession stuff quite a lot, um, and we've I've had conversations with lots of smart Man United fans about why leave that that fullback free, why not. Um, usually in those sorts of really aggressive systems, what you do is you just push your own fullback up onto the fullback in those situations and say, okay, this is quite a, it's an aggressive way of playing because you're taking a player out of your back line, pushing them up. But for whatever reason, Eric Ten Hag doesn't like to do that. And so I think we're seeing a lot of teams being able to exploit that. So in the, f- the second game against Barcelona, for example, Barcelona played much better in the first half of the second leg because they had that out ball all the time. They were able to find that free um, fullback. But the problem for me is, is that what, you, what ends up happening is when you play player for player, what you're doing is you're just, you're just setting up a series of 1v1 matchups across the, the field and you're making your defensive structure dependent on all of those 1v1 duels always being won by your players. Now, that's fine when you're Manchester United because they do have really, really good 1v1 footballers. So I talked in the video about how we, about Veghorst being dropped into the central midfield area seems like a weird move to make. 
when this guy's been brought in to play as a nine. But I think the difference is, is that Valvegos is much better in 1v1 matchups than, yeah. than Bruno Fernandes is, for example. Bruno Fernandes is a very mobile player and um, I think a smart player as well. So he like he, you can play him in those wide areas and he can do the thing where you're sort of jumping between the outside centre-back and the, and the full-back. Uh, but you want to get your player Fred, Casemiro, Vekos. They're all very good 1v1 matchup players and duels in the middle. And they go really tight, really aggressive. And they it leaves the back line exposed as well, where, again, you've got a lot of 1v1 matchups. You do have two centre-backs on the, on the number nine. But I think that what happened was is that as Liverpool got the first goal and they could they could sit a little bit deeper that pulls the manchester united players away from their own half it allows you to expose that back line a little bit more and when you're reliant on those 1v1 matchups always coming off when you're in a position where the pressure is ramped up it becomes harder to get those right all the time and so that's why manchester united fell apart because those 1v1 matchups suddenly just stopped happening because yeah. there's a psychological element to it as much as a as a as a physical one. I think I see, I see this quite a lot in five aside playing like a very very terrible <laughs> level. But um, if you're if people are marking man to man and one person let's like, say the, the someone goes up front and they just want to stand up front and then their defender brings it out suddenly they have a massive advantage because that someone has to go to then close down that one player who's got the ball going through the middle of the pitch because you should be in a diamond shape really and then uh, if someone else goes to that it's then leaves someone else free and yeah. it's dominoes so then when you see players like Fernandez who will do something stupid like when he's going down holding his face because he's pretending to be injured or whatever because he wants to get I don't know what he wants to gain I, from it to be fair to he gets a little knock to the chin not does. enough I know, I felt, I felt, of course and yeah. I'm not defending him at all no, but been... I felt a little bit bad for him in that specific instance because Gary Neville who was clearly really annoyed uh, watched the first replay where it appeared that Fernandez wasn't touched in his face, and then and said, "Look, he, hey, it's a chess." You watch the second one; he just continues saying the same thing. You can clearly see his he, face. He's a bit of a chin, but if in that's fairness, a normal thing that all yeah. footballers do. Fernandez just has a bit of proclivity for um, the dramatics around it. I yes, think. well, this is the thing; he likes the drama of it. Yeah. Like, he definitely tries to, and he's at the centre of attention, so the conversation yeah. centres around him a lot. But I, I, I think he gets a bit of an unfair rap for those sorts of things. No, I think. Well, I think it's entirely fair. <laughs> I think he does it all the time and he does sure. it at times when you don't need to do it and he reminds I think me that's of players, I think he's not very good at doing it maybe yeah. maybe that's what it is it just annoys me that you do it not at all because I can understand when you want to get an advantage sometimes and it's part of the game but he does it when there's just no need to do it and then he moans about things and he starts yeah. going out with the referee what's interesting I, oh, I, I, to, to take the side of people listening yeah. who, who might be biased Andy Robertson did exactly the same thing in this game where he, he got touched in the chest and he went down grabbing his face for right. a long time and nobody mentioned it. No commentator mentioned it at all. Yeah, it's because he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a reputation for doing it all the time. But I think sometimes it gets pulled out of context. Sometimes it gets made. Yeah, sure. Bigger, I can understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. I, I get it. Uh, I, I just... Well, that's one example of Fernandez doing that. But my point is not to go and ha- like hammer on Fernandez for pretending to no, be he screws better. the beginning of the system, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So then when you're doing that, then you're not in place, which means someone else is free. And if you're man-to-man, that's a real problem. And like Man United have exploited that really well against teams to do it, like uh, Bielsa's leads. Mm-hmm. They've done them a few times, by especially McTominay being really good at just dri- like driving past someone. Yeah, and, and that's quite useful to when you can take advantage of it. But then that, that psychological meltdown that they seem to have where... Then, because that person's not doing it, that person won't do it, and then that yeah. person won't do it, and you start falling apart. And it looks like there's a and division between attack and defence, and there's no middle. Yeah. And so then Fred goes to try and do extra stuff, but he can't do it, and they get pulled apart. Well, listen, I'm sure we're going to talk about Manchester United a lot more uh, in this regard. It'd be very interesting to see 
how they bounce back. I'm not sure who their next game is against. They're playing Real Sociedad on Thursday. Real Sociedad Thursday, Southampton on the weekend. Uh, Real Real Betis, yeah. So the interesting game, that's quite a big fixture to to bounce back in. We'll see see what they do. Ten Hag, I think, fairly making the point afterwards that this is not the same as a bad loss. This is a different thing he hasn't seen from his players before. But from Liverpool's... I kind of of feel... Well, just following on from what JJ was saying about... Mm. Leeds playing a man-for-man system. And just then... ignoring all the things I said about us moving on. Yeah, yeah. What, but okay, I do think yeah. it's... Let's, it's... let's just say what it is, I, though, right? I you do... are ignoring what <laughs> ignoring I, everything you, yes. I just said, and you're going to say what you wanted to say anyway. Yeah, what I'm going to say... It? I'm just going to say that I think the Bielsa link is quite nice because I think we saw a lot of games when Bielsa was the manager of Leeds where, you know, we were very competent against teams around us in the table, yeah. but then we would come up against a team like Manchester United who were able to pull our man-marking around, and we yeah. got absolutely turned over you get pumped 5-0 lot, yeah and a lot yeah. of people point to the get to the expected goals and they say oh it's only three expected goals it just felt like everything came off uh, the opposition that literally happened in every game where Leeds got absolutely game pumped is it's it game, game state it's game it is state. game state because we love game state here at Tifa Football Podcast one if you're give, if you're losing these situations where you're just opened out and, and the opposition are able to generate really good chances yeah. you don't need a huge amount of chances to score goals no. the other thing is is when you're 3 or 4-0 up as a Premier League footballer there's no pressure on your shot whatsoever so those, those shots become a lot easier to make as well so I, I think that comes into yeah, it too it's so, true, yeah. game state game state speaking of game state why don't Liverpool play every game like this one because they <laughs> were good in this one and they haven't been as good as they were in this one in other games this season I think that the the way that Manchester United played was maybe a bit naive for this kind of game. And we've already said that they played this really aggressive out-of-possession system. If you watch the game back, there's, there's phases of play in the first half where the three Manchester United midfielders are all pushed up against the, their Liverpool counterparts because they're playing player for player. And it just leaves space open for Liverpool to exploit. So it's almost making Liverpool's job a little bit easier. Um, it is, but haven't we seen Liverpool so far this season? Uh, you know, we described it before as, in some cases, becoming 10 1v1 duels you know or 9 um, those are the examples of the sorts of things that we've seen Liverpool not perform superbly at throughout this season so far right like think, individual errors and yeah and but I think the, the issue there is that what they're doing here is they're in the attacking phase when those duels are taking place I don't think that Manchester United really made Liverpool's press get exposed at any point yeah. um, in a way that other teams have done. And so it just very much became a case of Liverpool tried to play through the Man United press. If they, they can do that, they then have a lot of space to then exploit. And and they've got Nunes on one side and Salah on the other, and they can get those players running in behind. And I think that that's just perfect for them. Um, and Liverpool have been handed the ball a lot as well. It's not that they're winning it back with the press. It was they were in position to yeah. press, but they were being given the ball. And mm. one of the goals is a, a counter-attack from like a corner, I think it was, yeah. back to front and that's it's a I felt like they just had to one. sit deep and then wait for those spaces to open up yeah. play a few passes they knew that they had the fullback open so there's a nice get out for the like a, an aggressive press play that pass and then see what happens from there yeah there's a psychological point to it as well with Liverpool in that they, they've definitely been really good against big teams this season apart from Real Madrid obviously in Champions mm-hmm. League but against in the Premier League they've been really good against like City did not beat City I think didn't they yeah early on um, and they, they just not that they raise the level, but this happens sometimes. And we think they're, they're at the beginning of a new cycle. They're trying to transition into what they're going to be. They're having a, mm. not the greatest time. They're still close to the Champions League. They could easily get into that. It's Well, it's worth saying yeah. uh, they're currently three points off the top four with various different states of ga- games in hand, so it's a bit complicated to work out. But something else which I think might be important to mention, uh, two players, certainly throughout the first half and they're the beginning of the second half that were maybe most instrumental to them, 
Darwin Nunez and Cody Gakpo, two new players, it felt like I was watching a Liverpool team for the first time with that front three kind of clicked together. Klopp's tried a few different bits and pieces. He couldn't do it before Gakpo was there, obviously. And Firmino's going to leave it into the season. So it's interesting to see whether he wants to go with the same kind of falsy nine situation where the, the, the number nine drops in to help link with the midfield and have some dialogue there. But they can rotate with Nunez. You can also go through the, to the left or through the middle. So that's one thing. That'll take time to come through. Like this is a, I agree with Gary Neville saying this is like a freak result. But Liverpool were good for it. They, they were great. They, they played the way they should have been playing and everything kind of worked for them. And that gives you momentum and confidence. And my point on the psychological aspect of it is um, maybe they're really, really up for the big games and they've got the crowd behind them and then just everyone goes at it 100% mentality monster style yeah. going at it. But when you play against a team you've played a load of times in the last few years and maybe you're just not quite on it that one game that's when you drop that little bit of intensity when you're that Liverpool team then that's when the little gaps come in yeah. and you see the little bits of um, <clears throat> defence exposure that have been letting them concede goals during the season if that makes sense it does it does but uh, not to say that they're not desperate to win every single game yeah. but there will be certain ones where you're more up than it is and then yeah. when that happens this could be one of those things that then gives them that revive oh this is how good we could be this is what we need to be and then there's a real uh, it's like a, it galvanises them maybe yeah. going forward even though they're already half decent look there's, forward th- to them losing their next game well exactly this, that, that's exactly what I was going to I was thinking I was watching yeah. this uh, weirdly I was thinking I bet I bet they're nowhere near as good in that next game who, do they, who do they play next Liverpool do we know, uh, we got fixes know actually, there's a lack of consistency with Liverpool this season right that's, that's Bournemouth and, and they them. beat them 9-0, didn't they, <laughs> at the beginning of the season? They'll beat them. Um, but I, I do think a lot of this comes down to a lack of consistency. You know, the, the Premier League's weird at the moment because the the race for number four spot in the, that last Champions League spot just mm. seems so open because all Newcastle the teams in it away. seem desperate to not win. So yeah. um, Spurs drop points at the weekend. Newcastle are dropping away. Mm. Um, and Liverpool, as we've said, incredibly still, still in with a chance of getting the top four, despite yeah. the fact that we've been talking about them uniquely having a uniquely terrible season. I mean, last week on the podcast, I said I just don't understand how Liverpool can have just got so bad so quickly. Mm. Um, and that's what they, fired they them up. That yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. But um, yeah, it's it'll be fascinating to see how that race for the number four spot goes. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, another uh, dramatic uh, fixture that occurred over the weekend that probably would have led our coverage today had Liverpool not smashed Man United 7-0 was uh, Arsenal's comeback. Arsenal 3 Two AFC Bournemouth, team we were just discussing. Uh, Bournemouth, uh, pretty good in this game there, uh, JJ Bull. But I suppose a description that has been attached or has attached itself to this game is that of a title-winning sort of result for Arsenal. I mean, they scored their third goal in 90 minutes plus seven. And they were down within nine seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, great. It shows great resilience. And uh, team camaraderie to be able to come back. Give you another idiom. Can I add to John's mm. idiom list? Spirit. That comes later. The idiom Great list spirit. comes later. We're recording this backwards, by the way. So <laughs> it's possible that there are uh, references. It's that happening now. Continuity. And in the past. Yeah. And in the future. All one That's moment. right. Yeah. yeah. Back to how time works. Yeah. Uh, a couple of changes that Arteta made for this game. So you had Trossard playing up front. Big Tross. Yeah. He got injured quite early on, didn't he? He, he did, yeah. In the 22nd minute. Fabio Vieira started instead of Xhaka, who started every single game so far in the season. Um, that's not why they could the goal early on. But it was a, a, a routine from set from kickoff. Why doesn't everyone do that? Like a routine. It's so Because you've got a clear... I mean, they do, don't they? They, I think they do. score from them. Yeah. I've uh, seen them well, do that a lot. More people should score from them. More people should score. I agree with that too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's important. Good corner. Apparently that uh, routine they already did another time, didn't they, USA and John? The goal kick. 
No, the, the was the it a corner? the corner where a blocker drags uh, the near post yeah, marker right. away. The, yeah. bone, the bone with set piece goal, yeah. Set pieces are often rehearsed because they are repeatable actions. So it's, mm. yes. it's good for you to make yeah. sure you've got some kind of plan with them. And that one, like the way they score is the player who scores it attacks the near post zone and they just have a blocker who drags <laughs> the near post blocker away. Very so it's simple. Free. It's very simple, yeah. I Bournemouth. was listening to a Spurs podcast uh, this morning. Uh, what's it called? The Extra Inch. That's a good show. And they were uh, talking about a set piece routine that they d- they have done, which Harry Kane keeps scoring from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they described it as like it's the set piece that just keeps on giving. No one, no one's doing anything to stop it. They just keep scoring, keep yeah. scoring. Very fun. I was going to say Bournemouth generated 0.3 xG according to Opta from four chances mm-hmm. at four shots. So is that a lot or not? I think that's a lot. Yeah, because right. I mean, I guess if you divide them. Because it's meaningless when you just say it. I don't know what that means. Yeah, so 1.3 xG is is like over a goal's worth of expected goals, which you would expect to probably score from. Yeah. Um, To do that with four shots is is pretty incredible because that means that on average you're generating 0. whatever it is, 0.3. Just to be clear, you said 1.3. 1.3. Because I think initially you said 0.3. Oh, sorry. Which was what confused me. They they generated 1.3. Um, XG, XG from four chances, which is on average 0.03. And that's a lot, is it? You would call that a big chance, so four big chances. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's there's definitely something. Or oh, the Saber Ramsdale, the one on one, so good. Yeah. So yeah. they they generated like obviously the way that they're playing the game is sit deep, try and hit on the break. They had 19 percent possession. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and so it's a weird. It's another weird game, right? We talked about this with the with with the the Aston Villa game, right? Where mm. they deserved to win that game, but they won it in extra time. And this was another game which they deserved to win, but the manner in which they win it is sort of like well, they also kind of deserve to drop points as well. But sure. this was very much about. One of the ways of causing Arsenal problems is by just refusing them any space. They're really good at generating space in this, in behind the opposition's defensive midfielders, attacking that space and, and generating chances from there. One way you can stop doing that is by sitting really deep. You don't allow any of that space to open up, but you give the opposition the ball yeah. through the whole game. So Arsenal dominated pretty much the ball the whole game. Bournemouth were able to take ex- advantages of a few forays into the opposition half. It's a risky way of playing because you're giving the opposition yeah. the ball and saying and come like at you us. say every time they did have a chance it was quite it was, a big it was chance. quite yeah it was yeah, quite yeah. a big one um so there's two there's two things to say one is that when you play like that against arsenal even if you play really well and do exactly what you set out to do they are still more likely to beat you in those yeah. situations but the other one is is that there there's definitely a way of causing arsenal problems by sitting deep and then trying to hit them on the break okay. um so I, I think that's what we'll start seeing more of as as the season goes that's on that's what teams it, do against rangers and celtic in scotland well uh, you'd be careful now. i mean again yeah. <laughs> the reference won't make sense yet because it hasn't <clears throat> happened you'll hear it in the second half but there is a reason why jj needs to be careful about what he says yeah far be it from me to allow you to have another shocking experience such as the one that the listener will discover in the second half okay we're going to a break before the west ham bit looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Tony Evans here, host of Walk On, the Athletics' new look Liverpool podcast. 7-0, 7, count them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. That's what Jürgen's boys can do. And to Manchester United, is that the game to ignite the Reds' run-in? Well, we hope so. Join myself, James Pearce, Kiefer O'Neill and Andy Jones as we get stuck into Liverpool sticking it to United. Mo Salah's record-breaking afternoon as well as bringing you the best post-match analysis around. Just search Walk On wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes, that was a break. One quick last thing on Arsenal after the break. Very confusing, isn't it? This is good, though. Uh, 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 Harvey Downs on tw- uh, Twitter tweeted this. Uh, Arsenal have named a starting eleven without a single player to have made a competitive appearance under Arsene Wenger for the first time since January 1986. Is that because Xhaka didn't play? Is that- it's because Xhaka yeah. didn't start. Yeah. And then I was thinking, I guess the only other team that that's kind of attributable to is Manchester United. And De Gea is still starting. Uh, I mean... It may have already happened. De Gea may have missed a game. I don't know if it's happened or not, but that gap gone be long is all I'll say. Uh, one last thing from that Arsenal mm. uh, game. The noise that uh, you hear from the Emirates when Nelson scores the winner and then the noise at half at full time is uh, so good. Like It's one of those, I love those noises. And, and there's a couple of examples. Are you, are you bringing that up because at that time we got it's in not, trouble no. for talking about noise at the Emirates? <laughs> they pump it, it in, right? They like, pump it into the stadium. That's not what I <laughs> that's said. That's what you said, Joe. Hey, fuck <laughs> you, man. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> we, don't, we don't read the comments, you know. But there's a, so, so there's a few sounds in football. Like one of the best things about football is the noise when, when those big games happen and the big like, goals happen and everyone yeah. goes nuts. I absolutely love it. There's one when the second time that Liverpool beat Newcastle 4-3 and Fowler scores his goal at the back post, the noise, I swear it, the, the, the note is just slightly higher than it would normally be. It's rather than like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just slightly yeah. higher. And everyone's screaming it. And you saw it here against, uh, against Bournemouth at the very end. It's just that extra bit, it, means, it meant so much to everyone. They were so invested because what an amazing story, the way they've, yeah. like, you absolutely could script that because that would be the best way to make a game is if you concede early and then you, you score in the very last seconds. It's great. Yes. Another good one was when um, Adam Rooney, who plays for Aberdeen, he scored the winning penalty in the League Cup final. And the Rooney! noise. <laughs> exactly. He scored. But um, I watched the video now and again because the noise in the crowd is just slightly different to what it normally is when Aberdeen score a goal. Uh, like, I know what that noise is, what that tone, what the note is. I don't know what it, but have it, I said? Did I tell you when I, I went? Uh, is it earlier this season or last season? I went to see uh, the uh, women's North London derby. Did I tell you about this? No. I went with my sister Alice, who's um, who's a big football fan, and a couple of our family members. We were watching it, and obviously the the crowd. There were many more women in the crowd than there would you would find at a men's Premier League game, and also there were there were I think many more families, many more children yeah, there definitely. too. So the the sound of the boo when the Arsenal fans were booing Tottenham, it was higher. It was different. It was unusual. It was like, I don't know, I have the same experience as you. Like, that pitch and tone is, like, embedded in me from hearing it every every, every week. And then when it's just, like, upper, upper well, semi-octave booing you. or something. Yeah, people <laughs> booing me. Well, it's upper semi-octave. You're like, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I just notice it. I don't know. Um, there's something very melodic and musical-like about it. You know, often people yeah. sing the songs, they do it in a voice like, Aberdeen, they wouldn't talk like that Aberdeen, normally. Aberdeen, 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 Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, one of the Aberdeen songs, exactly, isn't yeah. it? But that's when they go, Arsenal, that, yeah. rather than doing like, Arsenal. It's hard to do football voice without, like, but, I but you know find myself yeah. wanting to do that if, if 
The only time I ever sing a song in a football game is if I accompany Uncle Damien to Carrow Road and they sing On the Ball City. I don't know all the words, but I pretend to because I feel bad that I'm there if I don't know the words that everyone does. So I'll go... On the ball, city. Yeah, I yeah. find myself doing the the, the voice. football voice because you want to fit into that everyone. Also, because you can of sing on the ball, city. <laughs> well, because you can sing, Never you do it mind The danger. Yeah, you know. I was thinking you better play like a football channel if it starts with the piano going. I like the the Sheffield when is it Sheffield Wednesday? They sing Hi Ho Silver Lining. And they sing, How does it it's hi ho, and then they turn off the the, the song, right. and it's like Sheffield Wednesday, yeah, and then it carries yeah, on with yeah. the music. I quite like that. Yeah, so you're singing fun. along to a song, and then it's just like Whoa! in the yeah. middle, and then it's like I like normal. it. Very strange, isn't it? Very tribal. Ah, human beings. Anyway, we're here to discuss human beings, and let's do so. A quick uh, meander through the results. I know we haven't got much time to spare, Steve Hankey. I know, I know, I know. But uh, a couple of things, of course, are we referenced. Let them uh, eat cake. Joe. Let them, let eat, them cake. eat cake. Another reference that will make sense when you listen to the second half. Uh, Man City, of course, uh, passing Newcastle. Not untroubled. Difficult game. Newcastle created lots of opportunities. Didn't score. Another team that created lots of opportunities and didn't score. Leicester. That was weird, wasn't it? Oh, good <laughs> yeah, lord. You missed like eight oh, goals. Poor boy. Yeah. yeah. He's anyway. a good player, though. Uh, here's another little note I took, John. This is for you. Of course, uh, Javi Gracia is the new Leeds manager. Javi Gracia looks like a musical comedian Boothby Grafo and Pyatt Pre from Game of Thrones had a baby and taught it to be a football manager. <laughs> That's a very niche reference. I did think that as I wrote it down, but it's fine. Uh, anyway, fine. Let's also discuss another big fixture uh, from the weekend, or perhaps not the fixture, but the, the state of the team at the moment. Uh, Brighton 4. Nil West Ham. Now, ooh, guten tag, that's bad for West Ham because, of course, uh, not only is it a 4-0 uh, loss away at the Amex, it is, uh, West Ham have only gained six points away from home this season so far. They are 100% in a relegation battle, 23 points, just one off Everton, who are an uptick of form in, uh, in 18th place. Uh, it's troubling times for David Moyes, isn't it? Although Roshane, um, who is the uh, Athletics West Ham correspondent, did say, Roshane Thomas wrote, uh, Moyes still retains the full support of the board. But this, of course, was perhaps the day that he lost the faith of the fans. The fans have been very patient with him, haven't they, I feel? I feel as though yeah. Yeah. he's had a weird trajectory at West Ham because he's had two stints there and he's sort of... Obviously, the the second stint was characterised by him saving them from relegation, and then it, it, it sort of coincided with with pandemic football, and I think that suited them to a degree because they play sort of fairly solid, not particularly energetic football, yeah. quite direct football in possession, and that worked out for them. And now, once that period was over, they then dropped a little bit again. They're another team who are like weird underlying numbers phenomenon freaks because their underlying numbers put them much closer to the mid table than the bottom of the table. But yeah. um it it the the big story for me with with Moyes is that he was almost tasked with taking them from being a team who were a relegation battler to a team who got into Europe for a, a little while. Yeah. And it felt as though they needed to make a playstyle shift to being a team who could maybe manage games a little bit more. They couldn't just be that direct, sit deep, hit teams on the break kind of team. Um, and they haven't made that step. And mm. it's not looking great at all. So. They've, got, they've got a top quality squad, though, haven't they? I mean, it's, it's sort of, when you look at some of the other teams that uh, surround them, I suppose you wouldn't include uh, Everton in that, just because Everton also have a, a, a very good squad. But in comparison to Bournemouth and Southampton and an argument to be made for Leeds, 
West Ham have a much higher quality squad of individual players overall. I think they have a decent team that could realistically expect to finish in the top half of the table, which yeah. is what the fans want them to do. Yes. When you look at Moyes at Everton, he... he he would finish one season. He would finish uh, maybe like eleventh or seventh or something like that. And then he, there's a couple of seasons early on at Everton where they finished high up. But then the season after they went really low, like seventeenth, sixteenth. They sort like. of cycled up and then big down. And then yeah, he had a couple of those down. in a row. And then after that, he had he he stabilised them and then they kept growing. Yeah. But like John says, the underlying numbers that like they just they're missing all their chances. Yeah. Um. Specifically, like with the one of the huge drop offs for me this season is Jared Bowen, who was massively important to them last season. Yeah. And when they play in the counter, he's amazing. Him, Antonio, like they're just really good at playing on the counter attack, exploiting space in behind. They could do it because he sat deep to avoid being. They want to be hard to beat. David Moyes teams as he want to do. Mm. Lots of uh, wide focused possession play. Lots of crosses, inverted wingers. But he's playing with a front three normally with the the central striker and two inside forwards, I guess you call them, maybe inverted wingers, doesn't really matter. But Jared Bowen uh, is about 3.37 expected goals underneath what he should be, yeah. him specifically. He uh, Thomas Socek isn't scoring to, goals. to Liverpool, didn't he, Jared Bowen? It sounded like that was going to happen and then it didn't happen. And Yeah, it could be various reasons. He's just not been on it this season. But yeah. if you're missing one of your key players from the season before, that's a real big thing, even though it's only just a few goals. Yeah. But those can separate the one nils and the nil nils from what you've been losing. Then, because they're not scoring their more susceptible to conceding and yeah. being vulnerable in that way. What's but, happening with Skamaka? I haven't I haven't noticed him much this season. He's been injured. He's played 16 games. Uh, well, he's at 16 appearances anyway. He's, he's actually one of the only players shooting over his expected goals. Right, really? <laughs> well, yeah, very barely. I mean, his expected goals are 2.47. His right. goals are three. Yeah. So it's, it's not perfect. But this is the thing with Moyes is that um, his Everton teams were never particularly exciting, but they were hard to, to break down and they would grind games out and get it's not yeah. hugely exciting well and you had you had Stephen Pienaar Leighton Baines and the Shameless yeah. Coleman for West, for Lane, the, the West Ham has got better as well I think yeah. it's worth saying yeah. um, two things have happened one <laughs> is that the talent the, the, the bottom of the table teams have is much higher naturally and the other thing is because it's so financially viable to stay in the Premier League you get teams at the bottom now just bedding in and, and just wanting to take draws against teams around them because you know that can be enough to, to keep you up and I think both of those things have probably made yeah. the, the West or the David Moyes play style a little bit more harder to, to get an advantage from as well if Agreed. teams are just sitting deep then it's going to be much harder to be able to directly attack them I'd, lo- I'd love to hear what you have to say but we've got to end the show oh do we? I mean, is it going to take last thing. 10 seconds? Yeah, I can do really quickly. Okay. Rafa Benitez said a very interesting thing in the Newcastle Man City thing where how come if you spend loads of money like West Ham did, it doesn't necessarily make you better because everyone else is also spending money. And when you spend that money, you've got to be successful as it works. Ten. Otherwise, you run out of time to be able to do it. That was 11. Um, I tell you what, I didn't listen to anything you said, but I'm proud yeah, of it. It was counting in your head, seconds. weren't you? Yeah. I was counting with my mouth. I think I got yeah. it. I think I nailed it. Well done. Well your done mouth you. is actually part of your head as well. Just That's to... right. Well, listen, let's have a break now. And then when we come back... You will hear us discussing things that we discussed over an hour ago. Oh, what a lovely break that was. We've returned from a delightful break. Anyway, before we get started uh, with the second section, first let me uh, reintroduce Mr. Seb Staffelblor. Ah, guten Tag, Herr Staffelblor. Guten Nachmittag, Herr Devine. Wie geht's? Yes, V Gates are sehr good. Listen, but we're going to talk to Seb in the second half about uh, various things on the continent and beyond. Well, not beyond the continent, but beyond the uh, concept of uh, geographical borders. But before we do that, and speaking of geographical borders, there was a little complaint about uh, a show that we recorded. Uh, when was it? Last Was it last week? It was last week, yeah. And um, JJ, I'm just going to read to you what someone sent, not to me, 
not to you, but to our editor here at The Athletic. He kindly forwarded it on to me. I won't reveal the name of this person. I, I don't, we, we shan't dox anybody. But I thought it would be nice fun uh, for you to hear this and also uh, for our listeners to hear, what well, on occasion, the kinds of bullshit we have to deal with. Yeah? Hi, Alex. Alex is the name of our editor. Long-time subscriber and fan here. Thank you for the great content. As such, I was hugely surprised and disappointed <laughs> by J.J. Bull's performance on the TIFO podcast this week. Hmm? As an exiled Scotsman in the south of England, I was excited to read that Celtic and Rangers were getting the headline treatment on the podcast. Not really true. There was a, it was a second, second headline. But instead of any kind of analysis, says this person, J.J., on Sunday's game, we got the following. A. JJ responding to a good question about Ange Postacoglu's tactical setup and fit with the Premier League jobs, with JJ repeating tired tropes about money in the Scottish game. Very tired, those tropes were. A question about the relative strength of both Rangers and Celtic squads, players to watch where they might go in the Premier League, JJ, answered by JJ with a weird ramble about Aberdeen players who've left recently. <laughs> it goes on for some time. Uh, but I'll come back to say, it generally strikes me as odd that you, and of course this again is addressed to our editor, that you would continue to employ someone who <laughs> <laughs> seems intent on dragging down Scottish football rather than talking it up when given the opportunity to do so, as is your duty. You must talk up Scottish football, JJ yeah. Bull. Um, beyond the tone, you appear unable to uh, be analytical or objective in the way that uh, this person has come to expect from all of the other people that work here. I hope you will consider his position for the upcoming <laughs> season, as our game has never been in better health and subscribers to The Athletic deserve so much better. Now, whilst I agree that Athletic subscribers deserve the very best, I, uh, I did think it was worth reading that out just to let the more casual and calm listener at home uh, know that sometimes people do write to our bosses to ask for us to be fired. <laughs> and <laughs> it's quite weird when you say it out loud like that. Yeah. But do you have anything to say to, to this person who said that? Well, the problem with you reading that out is that my, of course, I have a mandate, which is to bring down the Scottish game from yes. within London, which is yeah. why I first moved down here. That's why you left Scotland in the first place. So it's problematic that you've brought it up yeah. because that's all I want to do is bring it down. I agree. Burn it down. End it. Yeah, end it. Yeah. And I've tried, but well, they just keep going. They do, don't they? Yeah. They're very um Another thing is all those clubs are very uh very equally balanced in terms of wealth. Mm. So I mean obviously what I'm saying is silly. There's That's no right. I mean just cuz one earns slightly more than the other doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to compete at the same level sure. footing. Sure. Always. Do you agree that you should lose your job? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, That's in fact. And I, I will I, I'm not really here being paid. <clears throat> I'm done what like Larry David did in real life and just turned up for yeah. work on the yeah. Monday. Seb, have you ever has anyone ever written to your boss to ask for you to be sacked? I mean, technically that's you, so maybe we could have an ad lib version. I write to myself about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, you could, yeah. you could, yes, yeah, with two puppets yeah. asking, debating whether I should still be employed. I've yeah. written to Joe loads trying to get you sacked. Seb, so. <laughs> I know, but it, it kind of descends into a kind of incoherent ramble about Scottish football every time. So the points just don't. Because <laughs> you keep trying to bring it up. Yeah. Uh, people sometimes, to me, they will act when they're responding to something on Twitter or they're tweeting me on Twitter. They'll also include the handle of the company I work for, as if they think when the company sees what I've said, 
there'll be serious consequences. <laughs> you know, people do do that. They tag in big companies, thinking they that do. it's not yeah. like a twenty-two-year-old intern doing. <laughs> doing the socials that day. <laughs> anyway, if you're at home listening to this or indeed watching this on YouTube and you're thinking, hmm, maybe I'll write to someone's <laughs> boss and try and get them sacked, um, don't do that because it's weird. It's a very strange thing. Also, when it's written like this in a very polite, collegiate way, but the undertone is uh, insidious. Anyway, thank you for sending that in and uh, all the best to you with uh, your future. Now, uh, Seb has joined us, of course, to discuss all sorts of interesting things. And Seb Stafford, we're going to start with the sort of tricky topic of Newcastle United and their ownership. Because something happened in golf, correct me if I'm wrong, the first time anything's ever happened in golf, which was important. What was that, Seb? So for those who don't follow golf, it has been probably the most controversial period in its history because there is a, a big legal fight between the PGA Tour, which... Uh, has sort of run the main, the, the the world's main golfing tour for eternity, and Live Golf, which is run by the Public Investment Fund, who own eighty percent of Newcastle. Um, and over the past couple of years, well, over the past year even, they've sort of snatched away some of the biggest personalities and players in golf to compete in a, a new tournament. And there's there have been all kinds of arguments about whether these players can take part in old PGA Tour competitions and obviously sort of acrimony between different players and um, people within the sport. However, where this uh, affects Newcastle is the fact that this little fight, well, part of this fight has ended up in court in America and it's resulted in Yasser Al-Ramayan, who is... Um, He's the chairman of Newcastle, but also the governor of the Public Investment Fund. He's been subpoenaed and um, there have been a request for uh, documents um, from the, the PIF. And the lawyers acting on their behalf have said, have, have tried to claim a, a degree of immunity on their behalf, saying that um, Al-Ramayan is a, a, quote, sitting minister of the Saudi government. And there's a slightly longer bit, which is worth reading here which discusses the kind of the claim for documents um, specifically. It says, this is from the lawyers, the order is an extraordinary infringement on the sovereignty of a foreign state that is far from justified here. The PIF and His Excellency Yasser Al-Ramayan are not ordinary third parties subject to basic discovery relevant standards. So this is tricky for the Premier League and for Newcastle because, as we all remember, when that deal was waved through by the Premier League, Richard Masters said that he'd received legally binding assurances from PIF, which assured him that they were not acting on behalf of the Saudi state, that Newcastle weren't essentially being operated by Saudi Arabia, by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. He also said that the Premier League retained the, not quite sure of what the terminology should be, but some kind of legal mechanism to remove PIF if these legally binding assurances were broken or contradicted. So naturally, quite a few Premier League clubs, kind of unsure of which ones, but quite a few Premier League clubs are unhappy about this and are kind of exerting some kind of pressure on the Premier League to act. Amnesty International have also asked the Premier League to clarify their position and to investigate further. It's worth saying, just, just in the interest of fairness, Amanda Staveley was questioned about this. At, uh, she's been taking part in some kind of summit uh, over, the, over the past week. And she said that, uh, quote, the undertaking was that Saudi Arabia would not control the club. Full stop. That undertaking has been and is being honoured. So um, clearly she disputes that. But a really, really tricky position for the Premier League and obviously Richard Masters, given that he was the one to give all of those assurances when the, the takeover went through. 
Yeah, we have a the quote from Richard Masters in, in uh, telling the BBC in November 2021 that if the organisation found evidence that the state was uh, involved in the running of Newcastle, quote, we can remove the consortium as owners of the club. It sort of feels like it would be a big surprise, even though <laughs> it seems kind of obvious, if that happened, Sev. You're not expecting that to happen. Yeah, a big surprise because it would be completely unprecedented. Even if you, if you're forgetting the Premier League, if you look at sort of English football's history and its recent past with owners, it's an extraordinary step for someone to actually be removed. It's really something really you, you, you associate with American sport, for instance, and you know the ability to kind of uh, take a franchise away from somebody if they've you know, done something awful or if they're not fit to, to run it. We've never really had a situation where a potential owner has provided these legally binding insurances and has had to do so because of this specific fear even. Um, so how that would work and how that would work with the inevitable legal challenge that would follow, I have absolutely no idea. And uh, I haven't actually, so recording this on a Monday and I haven't actually seen any proper response from the Premier League. But then I suppose this is involved in all kinds of other issues at the moment, including you know, the charges against Manchester City and the legal fight that's obviously going to go on there. Um, also, and I know we'll talk about this at some other point, but the publishing of the government white paper and the, the Premier League's, it's not too subtle, attempt to show that it doesn't need regulation of, of any sort and it's completely capable of, um, of regulating itself. So you have all these kind of conflicting issues and sort of um, converging wins and Newcastle and the PRF is just another thing to add to that mix, really. It's goodness knows what happens from here. It is kind of funny, though, isn't it? Because it seems as though to sort of maybe inaccurately, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, Seb, to, but to summarise what Seb is saying, that on the one hand, the uh, PIF have argued that they are totally separate for opportune reasons. And on the other hand, they've argued that they are not separate at all for opportune reasons. It's weird, John, that we kind of live in a world where even though we know this, nothing's probably going to happen. <laughs> I mean, what, how does that work? It's definitely a case of having their cake and eating it here, right? Mm. They they want to get the advantages of of claiming that there's no relation when it suits them, and then they want to have the advantage of claiming there is a relation yeah. between the PAF and and the Saudi government when it does suit them. So, and who wouldn't want cake and to eat it? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, although I believe that that idiom is actually talking about having cake there and eating it. If you eat it, it's not there anymore. It's not there right? anymore. So, yeah. It, in this case, misunderstood I think, yeah. Why else would you get to, cake? You, you Marie have Antoinette it to eat it. Who came up with that? Was it Marie Antoinette? No, she said, let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. That was when there was no bread for the French peasants. So she said, let them eat cake. Let them eat cake. Because obviously there cake is, is cake. Yeah. They had cake, so they could... Eat she those, had cake. Eat the cake. They <clears> didn't, but yeah. they could have had cake, so... Because that other thing, that implies that why else would you buy a cake if not, like, you buy them to eat them, don't you? Mm -hmm. So, like, when you buy DVDs and don't watch them and collect them, you don't collect cakes, do you? So, of course, you eat it. <laughs> I have collected cakes, but I have collected them specifically around my midriff. <laughs> anyway, speaking of collecting cakes, uh, Bayern Munich, Seb Stavablor, are try attempting to collect Oh, isn't it an 11th cake in a row in the form of the Bundesliga <laughs> yes. uh, title? But, ah, I touch wood so that nothing changes, uh, you know, for fear of sort of disturbing the natural order of things, Seb. But could there be a delectable Bundesliga title challenge? I dare you to say no. No, there is. I don't think we'll be. I think we've got to the first week of March. Borussia Dortmund are level on points with Bayern Munich. And... 
this is not the Bayern Munich of old. This is not the steamroller Munich. There's a vulnerability to them. There's obviously their continued participation in the Champions League is not a distraction, but it's something else that they have to shoulder. And they don't have some of the luxuries of, of previous years. Obviously, Lewandowski is the obvious one. They don't have that, the kind of the tonnage of goals that he used to provide. But also there's a little bit of shakiness at the back. I've, I mean, it's not sort of been quite as discussed as Lewandowski. I think they really miss David Alaba and not just the battery of skills that he provides, but also the understanding of how to win. Alaba is a, you know, look at his mantelpiece. He's got one of the sort of most enviable collections of trophies in, uh, in modern European footballing history. And at the same time, there are kind of, there's a lot of noise around Bayern Munich. There's noise around Nagelsmann's future. There was a big old fallout um, as a result of an interview that uh, our own Rafa Honigstein did with Manuel Neuer um, and how upset he was at the club's decision to sack their goalkeeping coach, who's also actually um, Manuel Neuer's best man at his wedding. So um, there's turbulence and Borussia Dortmund, and I, I hope this doesn't sound mean-spirited, but without being particularly outstanding, um, they've been consistent. They've benefited from um, some good performances in key areas, some excellent goalkeeping. Uh, they've extracted a lot of value over G. Bellingham's growth as a player and transformation to a generally world-class midfielder. Mm. And they're playing well. Well, I mean, they're on an incredible run, aren't they? Like, um, I mean, JJ, obviously they beat Leipzig 2-1 over the weekend. That's a massive result for them. But I don't think I'm wrong in saying they haven't lost since the World Cup. They've won 11 games in a row now. They've won 11 games in a row? Yeah, when they beat Leipzig on Friday, yeah. That is nuts. It's good. They also beat Chelsea in the Champions League, which is a big result. Sure. Great goal, that, by the way. They yeah. scored against them and they play them on Tuesday uh, when this podcast comes out. Right. So we'll see how they get on with it. They're missing some big players for that game. Yes, they're, okay. They're well, decent, yeah. But then another thing, the underlying numbers, so without wanting to rain on the parade of the Bundesliga, like mm. Bayern, from the outside, I don't pay much attention to the Bundesliga properly. I'm looking to, to kind of watch their video on Bruce Dortmund. Yeah. But if you look at underlying numbers, expected points is one measure of it. Like Bayern are basically where they should be. They're top because they have the most expected points. And you look at Bruce, it's for 49.4 and they're on 49 points, for example. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and this doesn't matter because you can look at different leagues and I can give you some examples around the Europe as well. Borussia Dortmund are on 30, no, they're on 49 points, equal with Bayern. They were top of the league for a little bit on Friday, but their expected point is 37. Mm. So it's quite an overperformance. And Union Berlin are similar, 31.5 expected points, actually 44. It's big overperformances. Yeah. Sometimes you can keep those up for the rest of the season. If they do, then you've got a title race. But uh, well, What would suggest that uh, an argument you could make would be that uh, it w- uh, an overperformance would be required from any team. Well, exactly, and underperformance from Bayern. That's yeah. how you would do it. Yeah. So if Bayern do then not pick up mm-hmm. and don't perform at the level they should do, they, they, I mean, that's where you get the title race. But yeah. then you look around, I mean, in the Premier League, this is the thing as well, like Arsenal look good for the title, they, they could easily win it. And they're massively overperforming expected points. Mm. They're 51.6 expected, actual 63. Yeah. So the underlying numbers over a whole season would suggest that this is... Not sustainable, but again, that's why football's quite good. And sometimes you get random winners. So maybe there is a title race. Yeah, yeah. Also... Well, Union Berlin, speaking of, drew to Köln over the, the weekend, John, nil-nil. They are still in third place, 44 points now, five off the top two. Was this the weekend, do you think, where it became a two-horse race? Uh, we've been saying this, all, I feel like, all season, that like Union are going to drop off. Their numbers uh, are maybe not as sustainable as they might look. And yeah, I'm, I'm with JJ on this. Like, we, You can talk about underlying numbers till the cows come home, as I like to say. But um, sample sizes of a season are so small relatively that all you need to do is over overperform for, you know, Dortmund have, have won 11 games in a row. They probably shouldn't have won 11 games in a row, but they have. Yeah. And, the, and, and that extra boost of points that they get gives them not only 
a, a sort of points bedrock, but also momentum to go into the rest of the season and perform. So whatever, I don't know how many games are left in the, the rest of the season, but you know we're getting to the business end of the season now. Yeah. They're in a really good position too actually challenge for the title now had things happened differently it wouldn't have been that way um so i i, I do think that it, the underlying numbers are instructive as to like the level of performances that are being put in but once you get to this point where you can just push for the last 10 14 games of a season mm. um then who cares what the underlying numbers say t- to a degree so it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how how the, the the title race plays out. I think with with Bayern, what's with both Bayern and Dortmund, I think what's been really interesting since the World Cup is that they've both sort of gone back to basics a little bit. Um, so in the first half of the season, Bayern were trying a lot of really interesting things tactically. Um, there was a lot of creative thinking from Julian Nagelsmann. He was doing stuff with with a concept called minimum width, which mm. is about actually we talk a lot about maximum <laughs> width, right? Keeping your wingers really wide, stretching the back line. Nagelsmann was doing interesting things, having his wingers narrow, being able to get advantages in that way by pinning defences narrower rather than than wider. So if you can keep your back line really quite quite compact mm-hmm. then the space that can be attacked in the wide areas. Arsenal doing interesting stuff with, with minimum width now. Uh, and then Nagelsmann was doing sort of Red Bull stuff, the, the stuff that we would expect him to have done when he was at Leipzig but didn't, um, with, with more direct attacking through the central spaces as well. Um, in line with that minimum width stuff. So that didn't really work out. So now it feels as they've gone they've gone back to their sort mm. of standard um positional approach that you would expect Win games from. approach. Yeah, well, you know, you know, there's the, the, the sort of idea that actually if you structure your team well, you can you can exploit space and yeah. you, if you have elite players across the pitch then you will generally come across quite well. And, and Dortmund I think the same. They've they've sort of developed this this sort of fairly fairly simply structured play style which is really working for them because it's getting similar to what we've seen with Barcelona actually that they've got some really really good players they're getting those players into good parts of the field and then relying on moments from those players but Mm. the structure is important because it it gives them the bedrock um, out of which to to operate so they they play in this in this sort of I guess fairly simple 4-1-4-1 formation but in possession Emre Chan who plays as the six drops in between the two centre-backs that allows the full-backs to push really high and wide the the midfield four squeeze quite narrow they've got they were playing Karim Adeyemi as one of the wide players but he's now pushing forward um, in possession alongside um, Allaire he's now injured so it, it will change up a little bit but then you've got Julian Brandt able to uh, float around a little bit in the central spaces. You've got Jude Bellingham able to cause cause the, pro- the problems that we know that he can cause. So for me, like th- what Dortmund have done is they've just got a really solid system. They're getting the best out of their players. They have a talent advantage over a lot of teams in the Bundesliga, and that's mm. why they're in the situation that they're in. I guess the difference is is that in the big games now, when you would expect them in the first half of the season to maybe drop points, they're now getting those performances where they're they're actually coming through. But I mean, even against Leipzig, the underlying numbers, Leipzig. Over well over produced expected goals um, against. I've said that in a really complete way. They had a higher expected goals level than Dortmund. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and and uh, there is a sense in which Dortmund are, I think, going going quite heavy out games and then getting a goal up and then dropping and sitting a little bit deeper. So that invites the opposition on game state. Game state, yeah, is a thing. Um, Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that. Now, listen, Union Berlin, Seb, just to finish on Union Berlin, because, of course, you, know, you get to these sorts of stages in a season when a team is maybe challenging and overachieving and then they start to regress back to perhaps where you would expect them to be. Union Berlin still not doing that. It must be said, 
it cannot be overstated uh, how incredible it is that they are in the position that they're in, right? And I wanted to point out that you did a really interesting athletic football podcast last week with uh, with uh, Mark Chapman where you talked about this very thing. Yeah, I think one of the things with them, and um, one of the reasons why possibly underlying numbers is a little bit of a, not fallacy, but why it's a little bit of a distraction in this situation is you get the chance to watch Union and... You ignore the fact that they're defending a low block. I think one of the things you appreciate is how hard they work without the ball. That sort of play is kind of predicated on taking away all the kind of central space. So you don't, you very, very rarely see a uh, an attacking number 10 or playmaker drop in the kind of the, the central area, the central corridor in front of the penalty box. And that's because um, you can really see the cogs working. So I went to, I went to watch them play Ajax in Amsterdam and the press box there is very, very high. So you get like your own tactical camera for it. And you can see the sort of the the kind of the football manager view of, of of the way they play and how they counter and kind of the efficiencies in their game. And I think what they've been a victim of uh, over the last couple of weeks is number of games, a few distractions. So on Thursday they played their first leg against Union Saint Gilles to potentially progress through to a Europa League quarter final, which is absolutely absurd. And the season's progress to this point has been underscored by work ethic, organisation, complete buy-in. Also quite a narrow pool of players. They have chopped and changed a little bit, but they are dependent on a few key pieces. So, for instance, obviously, René Cadera, but um, Yannick Cabrera and Geraldo Becker. Like, without them, Union don't don't function quite as well and they don't, they're not quite as efficient. So the way they play, I think John touched on this, is to be successful they've got to be hyper-efficient at the right moment. So chance conversion has got to be absolutely outstanding. Becker's clearly uh, an important part of this. If you look at Herbera's, um season highlights, you'll see a couple of amazing goals he scored too. So you have all of these perfect moments within it. And um, without like a little, you know, the occasional touch of luck, but also a game plan executed absolutely perfectly, you see the walls cave in a little bit. So when they played Bayern Munich a couple of weeks ago in Munich, they got absolutely battered, really. And as Fisher said after the game, we weren't even the level below. I think his quote was we were, you know, two or three levels below just because the resilience wasn't there physically. You know, they played something like three games in six days. They've been to Ajax. They beat Ajax back in, back in Copenhagen. I don't think it's really fair to kind of to judge a side like Union on the same basis as some of these other teams. Even, even someone like Borussia Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund, beyond the developments in their game, I think part of their success is about depth. You see kind of the different options they have at fullback, the different wide forward options they have, the development of not just Adeyemi, but I think Daniel Marlins had a much better season. Jamie Bynogittens has come back in. Emery Chan has had a great season at the base of midfield. But you have other players that can drop back in as well. So I think maybe Maris Wolf, for instance, who can play as a fullback, who can play on the right of midfield if you need him to. At the beginning of the season... Not to be un- too unkind, but he didn't look like he belonged anywhere near the top of the Bundesliga. Six months later, he's been excellent. He actually he produced the kind of um, he produced the the goal which led to uh, the pass which led to Marco Royce's penalty. The kind of this wafted forty yard outside of the right foot, brilliant, brilliant bit of playmaking which you kind of associate with someone like Kevin De Bruyne. Someone like that is now in the squad at Union Berlin. You need to be sending out really the same 13, 14 players every week. Otherwise, it's not going to go well just because the resources don't exist. So, And that's why they call it an union. But anyway, listen, Seb, we've got three minutes and 30 seconds before your Zoom window rudely closes on us. We're not paying for a pro account. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you, Zoom? Give us a free service that's excellent. Before I depart, 
may I make another point just because... All right, go on then. What are you going to say before you leave? I was just going to say one of the interesting plot lines is the revival of Schalke this season. Um, and that's interesting because it's the Revia derby on Saturday night. So Dortmund will go to Schalke and this is a Schalke team who looked like they were relegated really before the World Cup. They looked absolutely hopeless. And who, under Thomas Rice, who was sacked by Bochum early in the season, have now put together a, a, a run of six games without defeat. Uh, I think they've only conceded twice. They've been absolutely excellent out of absolutely nowhere. And on Saturday, Rice and, and Schalke went to Bochum and won. So he went and beat his old employers to put them bottom of the Bundesliga. And so it's a fascinating little kind of um, nugget from the, the football gods. You say, right, well, here's your title challenge, Dortmund. And right on time, just at the right moment, here are Schalke in something like the best form they've probably been in in about two or three years, maybe even four, ready to put an axe through their season potentially. So interesting game coming up at the weekend. Thank you, Seb, for joining us today. And uh, we will chat to you again soon, dear boy. Our feeder saying farewell, dear Joe. There he goes. There's right. a thing where a bit we what, mm-hmm. we think there's a title race because we want there to be one in when, the Bundesliga. Yeah, I mean the people want there to be one. So it's not just Bayern every single year winning it. I think there's legitimately a title race though, isn't there? Mm, I think one. I don't know. I don't think so. I think Bayern will win it. You're so no. It, well, as part of my mandate, it's days. about as bringing part of down. My mandate. Oh, I see. Down the Bundesliga. <laughs> I thought it was the uh, Scottish football. Yeah, it's both. It's both. But there's many parts. I haven't revealed all of my mandate. Yeah. My favourite thing from last week, by the way, was uh, we were talking about what pe- what we think people find interesting, and I said, oh, I think people are interested in 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 the Bundesliga, and you said that's like uh, when I say that people are interested in uh, Scottish football, and you think it's boring. And I thought that's not the same. <laughs> the Bundesliga is not the same yeah. as the Scottish Premier. It's people who like that; they really care about it. I mean, so John people who like football. that. But of course, there are many. There are how many million people in Germany? Eighty something. Six point four. Eighty-six point four million. Steve like Any league where one team always wins it is not amazing. Yeah. No, I, like, I, I don't think I'm not arguing. Like Greek that the football is something is quite interesting because you've got several teams. Who, well, not several, but a few teams who could win it rather than just Olympiakos. Well, speaking of, that's the reason that we're discussing Serie A. And again, to your uh, jaded sensibility, you don't find this interesting, even though it now riddles and twists your own context. Mm. JJ Bull, the contradict. There he is. The I have con- to say what everyone the is the opposite of what everyone else says. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Serie A, listen, the reason it's exciting, JJ Bull, uh, is because John's going to tell you. Uh, we're about to have the fourth different Serie A champion in four years, mm. John. That's Napoli, who did lose to Lazio over the weekend, 1-0. That's, that's only their second defeat of the season so far. But they are currently 15 points ahead of uh, Inter Milan in second place. Uh, they're doing a, uh, a terrific job there, John, aren't they? And I'm sure that their team's going to be rifled and picked apart. And then maybe next year there'll be another winner. What do you think? Yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that the, the teams who... The, the leagues that aren't the Premier League are struggling to match the Premier League in terms of the finances. And that does lead to a little bit more of, 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 of variability, in, in, certainly in the, in, in the Serie A's case. Yeah. Um, it, does, <laughs> it does help that the, that the main team in, in Italy and in Juventus have been riddled with corruption and lost points here, there and everywhere to, um, to, to keep things on the level playing field a little bit as well. But it, I, I do think it is a question that needs to be asked whether or not the hyper financialization of football has actually made it less competitive in the in the long run. Well, they spent in January, I learned from a Tifo illustrated script, the whole of Serie A 
spent 30 million euros, which is less than Bournemouth spent yeah. in January. We've said it a lot on this podcast that teams like AC Milan and Napoli are struggling to compete with teams like Bournemouth in the transfer market as well. Yeah. There's a real appetite among players to get into the Premier League by hook or by, by, or by crook. Hook or by crook. I'm, I'm using, I, use, I never use idioms <laughs> until I'm on this podcast. I get into this studio. You come home. You were saying cake. earlier the business end of the season. Yeah, I feel like I'm on the archers, you know. You yeah. stick me in front of a microphone and I'm like... Ugh. Yeah, start making all these weird sound effects, don't you? But it means you have to look for value in players when, like, you'll find different ones that other players wouldn't take a punt on. Like, uh, Kvartskelia is maybe an example where you get mm. for quite cheap because you don't know how a Georgian international is going to perform in the higher, like, the Premier League. So the difference now with the Premier League teams is that they can buy the ready-made player who comes in and just makes them really good. Yeah. Whereas Bournemouth can compete to someone who might be on that level, but they have to pay thirty million for them. Whereas Napoli can snap someone up like Kvartskelia and do it. Uh, spend a bit less on them and then, but then players like Lebok has been really important to them this season and you've got like Minjay Kim has been really really good he was very cheap as well there's, just, there's value to be had in the transfer market you don't just because you spend loads of money on someone doesn't mean they're they're good no I think but no, I, I, I think as well with, with a team like Napoli when you have a player like Victor Osserman mm. you have a massive advantage over your, your opponents and like, again that's not to say that they didn't do great talent acquisition sure, etc sure. et but when you can bring in a player at that level and it just gives you that advantage over the rest of the teams, mm. it, it can decide a, a title as well. But yeah, Napoli have been absolutely brilliant this season, like one of the most exciting teams in, in Europe. So it's been it's been nice to see them come through. And it's, yeah, like we had AC Milan last season playing a very different brand of football to what Napoli are doing as well. There's definitely yeah. that variability there, which makes it a fun a fun league to, to watch. And all like, in all, an exciting... Uh, I've yeah, decided I like it now. I've decided I like it now. You're into the, it, top yeah. four, the top four... Is changing all the time as well. Like we, like we said, we had Juventus in there. Mm. They they lost fifteen points, dropped out, and then we saw AC Milan drop out again this weekend, and were replaced by Roma. Yeah, um, Lazio, Lazio still doing quite well. Yeah, Atalanta yeah. always there and thereabouts. So. Lazio forty eight points. Lazio could finish second. Yeah, you know, yeah. very changeable. And of course, uh, Milan losing to Florentina, Fiorentina over the. Uh, the weekend as well there. Monza, too. One Empoli. I just wanted to say that. What else have we got? Oh, here, Steve's dropped a couple of things in here for us to uh, round up. Population of Germany, 83.2 million as of 2021. We weren't far off that. We weren't far off at all. And uh, <coughs> the etymology of some idioms for you there, John. Some <laughs> yes, you've already yes. used. Having your cake and eating it. Of course, you used that one earlier. An early recording of the phrase is in a letter on the 14th of March, 1538, from Thomas, Duke of Norfolk, to Thomas Cromwell as, quote, a man cannot have his cake and eat his cake. Yes? They were unnecessarily uh, confusing in the past, weren't they? (laughs) Yeah. I think so, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad that I'm still using idioms from the from the 16th century. Yeah, I think it's oh, good that we're, them we're making sure people understand what these really mean so they're used mm. properly. Yeah, let yeah. them eat cake. Yeah. While the phrase is commonly attributed to Marie Antoinette, I think I attributed it to Marie Antoinette earlier. Uh, there are references to it prior to the French Revolution, and historians do not agree that it's likely that she had said it. <laughs> that's funny. Sure. Well, she would have said it in funny. French. She yeah, would have said true. it. In, yeah, she would have said. Um, cake now listen uh until the cows come home i think that one's appeared on the show before i mean i say a lot this one's nice i like this one 
The idiom, till the cows come home, has been in use since at least the 16th century and may have originated in the Scottish Highlands, JJ, where cows were allowed to graze for months at a time before they would meander home in the autumn. Well, as you well know, cows live inside houses in Scotland. That's true. Um, and JJ hates them because they're Scottish. Uh, what right, part so. of my mandate is to bring down cows. Bring down the <laughs> Scottish cows. Right. Particularly Scottish ones. Yeah. No, listen, the farming union, very powerful union in the UK, <laughs> so just be careful who you offend. Because, uh, listen, if the farmers' union writes to ask for you to lose your job, then if it's big, big farmer... Attacking us, <laughs> then nice. it was quite a long the way. Farmers are quite big as well, usually. They are. <laughs> I used to work on a farm. Did yeah, you? I did. I was a farm hand. What did you, what did you do? <laughs> I uh, mostly mucked out the pigs. Mm. Yeah, that's why. That's what you're Is good for. Yeah? Is it true that pigs will eat human? Bodies, if you throw them in there. Well, I've I've never thrown. I've watched a, dead a few. Human yes, bodies watched, to a pig, and so I uh, I've watched a few pieces of of modern culture where you've watched some pieces part, of modern culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah, films. Yes, the T4IRL YouTube search history has been odd recently, John. <laughs> <laughs> when but I've got into it, with, with and in these series, TV series, usually there's there's been this trope of we killed someone. So Deadwood is one of them, right? So Deadwood is Deadwood. set in the Wild West in yeah. uh, the Gold Rush era. And they basically in Deadwood, which is a town in wherever, I don't know where it is. Yeah. Um, every time they kill someone, they take the body to this Chinese chap who has pigs and they just dump it in there. Right. And, then, and they get well, It was popularized in Snatch as well, I believe, wasn't it? With Br- was it Brickhouse? Is that his name? The character the name of the character, Brickhouse? I don't know. He's the guy also in the Armando Iniucci sketch show who Armando Iniucci calls to fix his washing machine. But he's like the he's the old Cockney guy that they hire for all those roles. And the sketch is that when he shows up, he just tells the washing machine how he's going to fuck it <laughs> up. And it starts working again out of a bit of fear. <laughs> Recent episode it's of good. Silent Witness saw them having yeah. to open up a pig to find things in it. Yeah. And there was there was another period drama where this happened as well. Pride and Prejudice? It was wasn't it? Pride and Prejudice. Pig and Prejudice? Yeah. Pig, was it pig, uh, pig, 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 pig and Pig and Babe in the City? Pig and Pig in the City. That was Babe 2, wasn't it? Pig in the City. Babe 2 was Pig in the City. Babe 2, Pig in the City has one of the most terrifying moments in, in all children's films when the dog attached to the lead gets wrapped around the bridge and falls in the water with just his head in the water. He's going to drown. Babe, hero, saves the dog, but the dog is an evil character. Very terrifying. Made me afraid of drowning. And Babe 3 is an odd turn in cinematic history when Babe begins eating all of the bodies that are thrown to him. <laughs> That's right. Babe 3, a hungry boy. All I'm saying is as I was searching for Babe, Pig in the City, if you're wondering what's going on on the... Uh, yeah, the yeah. History, yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, listen. Uh, oh, it's Bricktop is the name. There we go. Thanks for that, Steve. Well, that's the end. There was a long description of by hook or by crook, but I, I think we'll leave that one for the listeners. That's 1380. To, that's it, even older. That is I'm old. quite pleased with that. To imagine for themselves. Very exciting, isn't it? Um, that's the end. Of, is that the end of the show, Steve? I think it is, isn't it? Uh, where are we? Um, yes. It is the end of the show. <laughs> We've recorded things in a bit of a, a back around way, but uh, I think for now, this moment, we will say uh, thank you very much to uh, JJ Ball, the Bullard. Yes. Yes. And and also, I've noticed in the comment section, sometimes people think I'm saying bullet. I'm not saying bullet yeah, as bullard. in from a gun. I'm saying bullard. What is a bullard? It's something we agreed about a year ago we wouldn't say anymore. Yes. <laughs> is that a bad thing? Uh, Wait, let's, yes. don't look it up, people. No. Let's, give, let's, give John, let's give John's live reaction to what that is. Yeah, let's just, we won't say it out loud. 
uh, but we'll just uh, let John look at it on the screen. Jimmy Bullard. No, 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 no. I'll tell you when it is. Remember not to talk off your mic, John. Yeah. yeah. Poor podcast etiquette there. <laughs> yeah, probably best not to mention that and definitely don't look it up. It's definitely good if you don't make it someone's nickname. Yeah. For, for, and it sticks forever, isn't it? Mm. Worth saying that uh, I didn't know it meant that when Did I started Did you think to call it was like it. a bullock? I think so. I think yeah. I just just said it once. It was just riffing, yeah. It was just riffing. It came out and then it stuck. And <laughs> <clears throat> words, eh? The power of language. Anyway, uh, Jonathan Dog McKenzie. <laughs> yeah, search for what that means. Uh, thank you very Joe's much. Joe's go-to improv word is dog. Yeah, yeah that's it is. True. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. Mine's lizard. I've, yeah. I've definitely done better than than you in the nickname stakes. Clearly, so. Yeah, I'm happy with that. And then thank you. Yes, yes. enjoyed it. And uh, thank you uh, to uh, Steve Hankles, uh, producer Steve out there, and of course to uh, producer Don uh, today as well, who has his head in his hands. Very tired. I've just found out what bullet actually means. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no good, is it? No, Not good. Real bad. Real bad. Yeah. Almost as though we shouldn't continue drawing attention Absolutely. to it. <laughs> I think we got away with it. I think we mentioned it once. I, I think, think so. We, we got yeah, away with it's it. fine. It's fine. My boy Bullard. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be back next week. Actually, I won't be. I'm not here next week uh, because it's Le Oscars. Yes. Oh, yes. Very theatrical chap such as myself. I must attend the annual <laughs> event of import, by which I mean I'm going to my cousin's house to uh, stay up late, eat sugary foods, and uh, watch the Oscars. You know? I've done it for... 15 years in a row. Have you seen all the movies that are nominated for Best Pictures? And I've seen nearly all of them this year. I tried to get the ones in the big, the Best Picture and then like the acting ones. Mm. Some Who's very gonna good win? films. I actually don't know, although I think of the Everywhere, Everything, All at Once film. I can't remember oh, what you didn't like it. Have you seen The Whale? I didn't love it. I haven't seen The Whale. I've heard that's uh, an excellent performance from Brendan Fraser, uh, but uh, and I, I have heard that the film isn't. You that happens Brendan sometimes Frasier. at the Oscars, by the Is way. That how you say it? Fraser? Fraser? I'm not Frasier. sure. I've always said it. Uh, Fraser. American Top tip if you uh, are looking at the Oscar categories. If you look at the acting categories and you notice a film, particularly if it's in lead actor, uh, if you notice a film where it's not nominated in any other category apart from that one, you go, okay, that's a performance film where one actor does a terrific job, uh, but the film's just fine. You know, I, I try to avoid watching And that film ones. is Babe 3. <laughs> <laughs> I thought his turn as the cannibal pig was very impressive, but the film leaves something God, that to be pig can act. Mm, Do you not think can. if they did like a, a horror version of Babe, it would actually go down quite well? I'd Especially if they didn't, they didn't sell it as a horror film and there's just kids like Probably eating their would. popcorn and yeah. then it just becomes... I think there'd be a high take-up for that. Yeah. I should say, though, my favourite film of the, of the year was the uh, Moon Age Danger in the David Bowie documentary. That was, have you guys seen that? No. Oh, it was terrific. Also, no. It was so good. I don't think it's nominated for any Oscars, but that's not what the Oscars <laughs> are about, really, you know. What was your, you got a favourite film of the year? I just like watching Dumb and Dumber, yeah. mostly. Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. 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 You are a kind of old joke guy, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Sort of, yeah. yeah. References old, to things that comma, I know from the 90s, yeah. Joke guy. Uh, did, you, uh, did you not enjoy Top Gun Maverick? Have you seen that one? Yeah, it's probably one of the best films ever made. It'd be right up there with Jurassic Park. Yeah? It's magic. Do you really think so? I think movies... I, it's on my list to watch this week. I haven't watched it yet. So, like, you haven't seen it? No. Oh, see, this is the thing, right? So, and again, I've watched lots of movies for my degree that I did. Yeah. Uh, 
And always got to get oh, that in there. No, well, there's a the thing because people always like, like movies are meant to be this arty thing that makes you feel something, and that's sure. nice. But I like to avoid feeling things because I have to think about life, really. Yeah, yeah, so if yeah. I just have things in the middle, that's fine. Yeah. And Top Gun, you don't have to feel too much. It's just a thing that happens. You're like, wow, I'm on a, a roller coaster ride, but it's an object. It's amazing. Right. And they've done it very well. Uh, it's just a perfectly put together movie, like to watch like that. I call it a movie yeah. rather than a film. You okay. know, a film's like Citizen Kane. That's a yeah. film. Yeah. Whereas. I think it's brilliant, yeah. I would, I mean, it's, it's like we both like Jurassic Park, right? I, I, I think Jurassic Park's maybe one of the best films ever made. Me too. Yeah. And I, it's in there, and um, I watched Top Gun and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe how good that is. Oh, I'll watch it this week. Fine. What, what's your favourite film of the year, John? I can't even tell you the last time I went to the cinema. But right. I, at the moment, I'm watching my way through the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. Because I really liked the old Star Wars when I was young. Yeah. I the the original trilogy. And do you like really the young Star Wars of, now? You're I old. Really watched any of the other ones? No. So I'm watching my way through it. Oh, it's interesting. It's like it's it's interesting going back through it and being like, oh, there's actually quite a big political backstory here that when you're a kid, you're just like, ah, 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 yeah. The trade <laughs> the trade discussions are fascinating when you're eight. Yeah. 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 I do think John McKenzie's the only person I know who would say I'm watching the Star Wars series at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> the only person I know who would describe that well, as interesting. I do not think, to say it's not interesting. I think that like the the political background of Star Wars could potentially have been done quite well, but they didn't do agree. it. Agree, so, um, agree. Because yeah, that it's quite it's quite a new it's quite an ambiguous political yeah. background, right? Yeah. It's sort of like there's some bad guys, and then these are the good guys in the in the in the in the original trilogy, and then you go back, and it's like actually there's lots of bad guys all over. Well, the indeed, place. I find that in the in the the prequels, uh, the uh, the confusion of Count Dooku very mm. strange, very mm. grey area, as they say. All of the best sci-fi that came out of the uh, you know the Soviet Union times, maybe it's just a satire of the modern world. Have mm. you heard the theory that Jar Jar Binks is actually a Sith Lord? <laughs> so there's a real theory that when you describe Sith Lords they um, can disguise their real power and do it in comical ways which is what Jar Jar Binks does he, like, he falls in he's always in the right place at the right time ah, he's like Lewandowski yeah. right? Casemiro yeah he's there he fills in the gaps but um, so but there was such hatred towards the character and that poor actor who got a load of hatred out of it. Yeah. Um, and then so they, they changed it apparently for later ones I mean well. that might be nonsense but there's, you know Star Wars nerds go right into it I want to know what Dave Filoni and John Favreau say about it, because they would know. Mm, Love those guys. Yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, well, that's probably the end now, isn't it? I would have thought. That's the end. But anyway, if this makes it in, wow. <laughs> I think it will. Uh, I think by the time they get to the end, they'll stop, stop. They'll be too tired to do any more editing of things out. But suffice to say, Michael Bailey will be joining uh, you and you next week um, for some more football chat. So look forward to that. Or something. But until then, all the best. Bienvenue. Take care. And, uh, you know, just keep old chugging along. Until next time.
The Athletic.